You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. New developments tonight in the nationwide manhunt for two Port Alberni teens, suspects in the murders of three people in northern BC. Late this afternoon, police confirmed they're investigating a report of a suspicious vehicle spotted in northern Ontario. Romina Dea reports the potential sighting comes just as RCMP scale back the search in Manitoba. Dead or alive, police don't know. On day nine of the nationwide manhunt for two BC teens wanted for murder, RCMP now scaling back the search. I know that today's news is not what the families of the victims and the communities of northern Manitoba wanted to hear. Police from across Canada, including the military, have searched 11,000 square kilometers of rugged terrain. The search area, more than 100 times the size of Stanley Park. Over 500 homes canvassed, abandoned buildings cleared. More than 250 tips followed up on, but no evidence of the suspects. We would really like to find these, these suspects. We would love to be able to contribute to getting justice for the families of the murder victims. This is a very large area that we're looking at. As I said before, it's very remote. I can't say it's terribly surprising because it's, it's just a very tough place to find somebody who doesn't want to be found. The last confirmed sighting of the teen fugitives nine days ago when their burned out getaway vehicle was discovered dumped in the bush near Gillam on July 22nd. The RCMP concerned the suspects may have received help to flee. To be clear, we are not ending this search. A number of tactical resources and specialized assets will remain in, positioned in the Gillam area and will continue the efforts to locate the murder suspects. All right, Ramina Day is live in the newsroom now with some more details about what we're learning about mm. that report, Ramina, of a suspicious vehicle in Ontario. Chris, the Ontario Provincial Police confirming that it did receive a report at approximately 10.35 this morning Eastern Time about a suspicious vehicle driving through a construction zone on Highway 11 in Capus Casing. The northern Ontario town is more than a thousand kilometers southeast of Gillam, Manitoba, where the fugitives were last seen on July 22nd. Now, remember, that was the last confirmed sighting of the BC teens. Now, the OPPC, the OPP rather, says that the vehicle spotted this morning was occupied by two males, but it cannot confirm their identity at this time. There are several rumors circulating online, Chris. I literally just received an email from the OPP just a few moments ago, and they say that they have received dozens of calls over the last week, and none of them they've been able to substantiate. So this latest report about these two males, they're still investigating that. Chris. All right, no doubt. Thanks for the update, Ramina Dea in our newsroom. Now a disturbing case of road rage caught on video this morning. It's hard to watch, and it's not clear what set this scuffle off, but it happened around 6.30 this morning on the east side of the intersection at Marine and Boundary. It appears at one point that one driver gets out to try to break it up, but when that didn't work, he moved on. Vancouver police do have a copy of this video. It's not known whether they are investigating at this point or whether there could be any charges. The Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner is now investigating an arrest on Vancouver's downtown east side that was caught on video. Hey, 
The arrest happened yesterday. The VPD says uh, they were called around 11.30 a.m. to deal with a man who was acting aggressively towards staff at the Patricia Hotel at Hastings and Dunleavy. Police say the man attempted to punch one of the officers and was tasered to little effect. When the man repeatedly refused orders to roll onto his stomach, they used a beanbag gun, hitting him three times in the leg. The 35-year-old was taken to hospital to be assessed. He's now facing charges of assaulting a police officer. The OPP says it did not receive a complaint from the public, but due to the video circulating on social media, felt it was in the public's interest to investigate. And VPD are looking for two people they believe have information about a serious assault on the east side. It happened July 4th. A man in a wheelchair assaulted in the parking lot of an apartment building on Cecil Street near Kingsway. Today, police released images of a man and woman captured by CCTV near the scene of the attack. Anyone who may recognize the couple is asked to call the VPD's major crime section. There's a growing conflict in Coquitlam over what to do about habituated bears. Three people arrested and charged last night when they allegedly obstructed conservation officers who had been called to deal with a problem bear and two cubs. Jordan Armstrong has more on what happened and how the issue has divided the community. In a warning, some may find this subject matter disturbing. It's tired. Like, why don't you go hang on to a tree for an overnight? He was the first of four bears to be killed in Coquitlam's Chinaside neighborhood this week. This Bruin suspected of ransacking a home. No! It was in no way, shape, or form aggressive. It was, to me, it was unnecessary. And on Tuesday night, three more destroyed. A sow and two cubs. But not before three neighbors got arrested accused of obstructing the conservation officers. They grabbed me, they put handcuffs on me, they put me in a car, it was really hot in there. Because of how they were treating Susan, you can see her there. Their phones, seized by Mounties, called in for backup. Susan Flint and Tony Fasine are now facing charges under the Wildlife Act. Well, I was, I was standing on the sidewalk filming. Uh, yeah, so that's... I guess the obstruction was that he wanted me to not be there filming him. They were told multiple times uh, to leave the area, to back away from the situation, and they chose not to. He adds the sow and two cubs had lost their fear of people and developed a deadly habit for unsecured household garbage. He says the Conservation Service tried several times over the last six weeks to trap and relocate these bears, but with no success. None of the officers became conservation officers to, to you know, destroy wildlife. I don't know what the solution is, but shooting them... There must be other ways. The mayor says the solution is in her neighbors, who despite years of warnings continue to leave their trash accessible to the animals. Don't blame the conservation officers or the bears. Richard Stewart says blame the people. Bye-bye. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Well, concerns tonight that chunks of metal are falling from the Granville Bridge and it's only a matter of time before someone is injured or worse. Sarah McDonald joins us live with more on the concerns and what the city is saying tonight. Sarah. Well, Sophie, the city has not responded to our request for comment tonight, but we do know a long-standing issue in the city of Vancouver is back on its radar tonight. The problem, falling chunks of rusted steel like this one, plunging from the Granville Street Bridge and causing a major risk to public safety. I'm holding some pieces of uh, 
flaked off steel, rusted steel pieces and parts. Um, I would say what's in my hand weighs the better part of a half a pound. That's David McCann, a business owner at Granville Island. He has been raising concerns about those chunks of steel falling from the decades-old Granville Street Bridge onto the ground below for years now. He says it is not only a major risk insurance-wise for business owners, but it's also a major safety hazard to anybody visiting Granville Island. McCann says he has found fallen chunks of steel up to a meter in length in years past. He's sounding the alarm once again tonight that it is only a matter of time before somebody gets serious injured by one of those falling pieces or worse. Well, a couple days ago, um, another piece of steel fell from the Granville Street Bridge, and this has been going on for a number of years. The city reacts really quickly when we do it, but there have been much larger pieces than the one that fell down recently, um, and I just don't understand why the city doesn't get a, a preventive maintenance program in place. Eventually, someone is going to get seriously healed killed or hurt. And McCann says the solution in his problem, in his opinion, I should say, uh, as you just heard, is for the city to step up its maintenance work of the bridge. Sophie, he even says another simple solution, in his opinion, would be to install a net underneath the Granville Street Bridge to catch those pieces of falling steel. All right. Thanks for that. Sarah McDonald reporting under the Granville Street Bridge. The Ministry of Education is getting a failing grade from many high school seniors and their parents after a system error incorrectly graded post-secondary exams across the province. As Grace Key reports, while the problem has now been fixed, concerns remain about the impact it could have on university acceptance. It turns out human error caused a problem with thousands of grade 12 transcripts, but the province says the problem has been fixed. Still, it caused plenty of stress for students thinking they weren't getting into university anymore. For some, it was over English marks. Well, I viewed my score and it said I got a 61%, and that was a 32% difference from my class mark, which was 93%. The problem involved five provincial exams and affected almost all of the nearly 32,000 students who took the tests in June. Information was entered incorrectly into the reporting system. A statement from the Education Minister Rob Fleming reads, system checks and manual spot checks of results at every stage of the process have now confirmed their accuracy. Grades will be communicated directly to post-secondary institutions. BC's ombudsperson will be keeping a close eye on the situation and the impact it may have on students. Right now we're monitoring and we're requesting information from the ministry and down the road we'll make a decision about whether we need to start a formal investigation. And if students are impacted by the transcript error, the ministry could face a major legal problem. It would be a calculation of future wage loss and the sort of economic impact of the loss of the opportunity of going to university. Even if it's just a setback of a year or a withdrawal of a scholarship, that can be thousands of dollars that's easily quantifiable. Canadian post-secondary schools and NCAA institutions in the U.S. were notified. The minister saying this will not impact fall admissions and grades are now correct. Grace Key, Global News. A house fire in Mission this morning prompting a big call out in that community. Flames erupting from the roof and destroying the second story of the home on Cedar Street between Cherry and Best Avenues. The single family residents also had a suite in the basement, but thankfully everyone got out safely.
For mission based on our size, it was pretty much page everybody. Um, we had all three stations paged to attend this incident and uh, had crews from all three halls um, in attendance as well as uh, our career callback. We're in investigation mode here right at the moment trying to find the exact cause, but it, it, nothing at this time appears suspicious to us. Meantime, the city of Port Moody issued a demolition permit today to take down what was left of two heritage buildings after a fire last Sunday. And as you can see, crews wasted no time in getting the job done. The fire destroyed the two buildings in Port Moody's historic commercial core on Clark Street. Two others were damaged by smoke and water. The cause has not yet been determined. Right now, though, it is hard to believe but the White Rock Pier is on target to reopen to the public at the end of August. It was just December that a powerful windstorm destroyed the iconic structure. Jill Bennett has the latest on the rebuild and all the work that still has to be done. Almost 70 steel pilings are being installed here, along with a new concrete base. There will soon be new decking and handrails, essentially a brand new pier. A 100-foot section of the pier was wiped out during this December storm. No one was hurt, even those stranded on the structure. Now, though, it's clear the public is ready to welcome it back. It's a shame that it's been unusable for the, for the folks around here. It's a staple. It's a white rock staple other than the white rock, right? Are you excited that it's going to reopen? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> white Rock's mayor says the pier is on schedule to reopen at the end of August, but that's just phase one of the rebuild. And this will simply be the reopening of the, of the pier so that the damaged pieces will have been corrected and replaced. We still have the second phase, which is replacing the entire rest of the pier. Improvements being made to the new pier include higher environmental standards. It will also be better equipped to withstand an earthquake and more major storms. Work for the second phase is planned for the next two winters and comes with a hefty price tag. The first piece is around $4 million and, and we're comfortable with that. The second piece will probably be in excess of another 11. We're working on federal and provincial grants, funds for uh, infrastructure and reconstruction from storm damage. And so Even with several fundraising initiatives underway, it's expected the final cost could be more than 16 million, worth every penny for those who love the pier. This is my happy place. I love coming here. Everybody had so much fun down there in the summer, so it'll be really great when it's open. Jill Bennett, Global News. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to that. A well-known Steveston Fish and Chips restaurant is being sued by a number of people who were injured in a ramp collapse. It happened two years ago. The ramp leading to Pajos cracked and collapsed into the water. Four people were dropped about four and a half meters, resulting in one person being taken to hospital with minor injuries. Now, three people, all from the same family, are suing the restaurant, the Steveston Harbor Authority, and the Federal Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans. Well, many people think immigration rules are purely federal jurisdiction, but a B.C. woman says provincial regulations are keeping a refugee out of the country. The man is currently in a refugee camp in Greece. He has sponsors, he has a home, even a job waiting for him here. But as Nadia Stewart reports, a classic Catch-22 situation is blocking his arrival.
I don't know what will happen next. Syed Amadzia Ibrahimi's dream of coming to Canada is the hope he clings to. The documentary producer has spent the last 18 months in what's been dubbed one of the world's worst refugee camps in Lesbos, Greece. They're living in a tent, food lines, take hours. I don't know what should I do next, and it's very difficult. It's here he met Lori Cooper when she came as a volunteer. Last year, Cooper led a campaign to get Syrian asylum seeker Hassan Al-Kantar here to BC from a Kuala Lumpur airport. But Ibrahimi's case is different. I knew that I wasn't able to sponsor him to come to Canada because he was in the EU, uh, so he's not eligible to be sponsored as a refugee. Cooper tried another avenue, bringing him in as a skilled immigrant. He has valid travel documents, passing grades on his English exam, and a job all lined up. But when she went to apply... We were told that he didn't have enough points to come here. And the only way that he could have had enough points was if he had Canadian work experience, which is completely impossible for a refugee. It's a complete catch-22. It just seems crazy. Mark Miller's production company, Thunderbird Entertainment, has everything lined up for Ibrahimi, right down to a desk with his name on it. Everybody here is lined up to help out, to help this guy out, to give him an opportunity, and we can't seem to get it through. It's really frustrating. Immigration expert Richard Curlin says there is no easy avenue, but there is one possible option, one Cooper says she was told would not work, having the employer obtain a labor market impact assessment and then applying for a work permit. And it can be done in a case like this because of the unique experience of the prospective employee and the type of work. BC's Minister of Jobs, Trade and Technology would not comment specifically on this case. Still, Ibrahimi is hopeful his dream will come true. I would be a great person for Canada and one day, one day they will be proud of me. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A special unveiling in Surrey today. A portion of 75A Avenue has been officially renamed to Komagata Maru Way. The Komagata Maru was the name of a ship carrying 376 passengers from Asia in 1914 when it arrived in Vancouver. Passengers who were mostly from India were denied entry and were forced to stay on board. After being in limbo for two months, the ship was returned to India, resulting in the deaths of 20 Sikhs. It is vital that we remember and learn from the past. Because those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Komogal Marue is proof that the citizens of Surrey will not forget the injustices of the past. And that we as a city that welcomes and embraces people from all over the world. The tragedy is often described as a dark chapter in Canada's history. Both federal and provincial governments have officially apologized for the Komagata Maru incident. Well, tonight, Canada hopes to dazzle the crowd, taking in the Honda Celebration of Light Fireworks. Our Yvonne Shell is live in English Bay right now with showtime set to go at 10 p.m. Will the skies be clear for it? Let's find out, Yvonne. 
Yes, and it's very pleasant down here. We're just starting to see the crowds in. Joining me now is Michael McKnight. You're the co-chair of the event. Uh, things kicked off uh, with a fantastic display by uh, Team India on Saturday, and tonight Team Canada is going to take the skies. Well, yeah, we were so excited with India being a first-time participant in the Honda Celebration of Lights, and they set the bar so high. So we're all really excited to see if Canada um, can meet or beat that, and Croatia, another first-time participant, uh, will have the same opportunity on Saturday. That's great. Great. We're excited to have new teams participating. We're just starting to see the crowds uh, filling in now, people finding their spots. Where are some of the areas that we can check out the fireworks tonight? Well, anywhere around uh, English Bay, you know, whether it's Vanier Park, right down here on Second Beach. I love being right down by the Inukshuk because it's, you know, center stage. Even on the North Shore, there's fabulous places to watch for everybody, including families. It's a very family-friendly event. And you've got a lot of family activities. If you aren't able to make it down here on Wednesday, on Saturday, uh, what time do things kick off if you're planning on making a day of it? Well, things happen all afternoon. Uh, it's not just a celebration of light. It's a celebration of music, a celebration of food, and a celebration of community. So there's free musical entertainment, um, events for kids, uh, lots of food. So, you know, I encourage everybody to come down early, uh, not only find a place on the beach to watch, but enjoy all of the activities that are going on. All right, we're looking forward to it. And, of course, with uh, Team Canada Night, so things will kick off at 10. I'll have more on the forecast, temperatures that we're expecting, but it's going to be a dry one. So thank you so much, Michael, for your time. And your full forecast is coming up very shortly. Guys? Look forward to that. Thanks very much, Yvonne. He said that the plant, the tank that he was working around blew up and that he was trapped in the back. He said, kiss my babies and tell them that I love them. <laughs> I just want him out. A Texas mother recounts a desperate phone call from her son after an explosion today at an Exxon refinery in Texas. Thankfully, while 37 people were hurt, all of the injuries were minor. Residents in nearby neighborhoods were issued a shelter-in-place order as a precaution. This is the latest in a series of petrochemical industry explosions and fires this year in the Houston area. An inquiry into the case of Canada's first known health care serial killer is calling for sweeping changes to long-term care in this country. Ontario nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer is serving life in prison for killing eight elderly patients with insulin overdoses. One chilling conclusion from the report, if Wetlaufer hadn't confessed, the murders would never have been discovered. All of you should be punished one way, shape or another. Some of you should go to jail. An emotional outburst in a Woodstock hotel conference room where recommendations were revealed following a public inquiry into serial killer Elizabeth Wetlaufer. I understand the family. I cry every time I hear them on the news. The deaths of elderly patients still haunting many, especially family members of the eight victims who were under her care, victims killed by insulin overdose. And my dad was murdered. And many other people's family were murdered, and if the government that comes in today doesn't do anything, more of our family members will be murdered. The commission led to three findings. If Wetlaufer had not confessed to the killings, the murders would have never been discovered. Not a single one of the offenses that she committed was under suspicion or under investigation. We would not have known about them, period. Also that the offenses were a result of systemic vulnerabilities of the long-term health care system, not the fault of one individual or an organization, and that the system is strained, not broken. Those led to 91 recommendations, some of which include increasing government funds towards nurse training and education, taking reasonable steps to limit the supply of insulin, and adopting a screening process for nurses and staff that includes background checks. 
We are looking at the recommendations and we will be doing a comprehensive review to understand uh, what we can do now and going forward. The Ontario government would not commit to funding the proposed changes just yet. I'm very hopeful that'll happen. Um, I've heard, we heard beforehand that some of the recommendations that are in the report are already being implemented as we speak. Promising only to report back in a year and pay for counselling for family members of the victims. Camille Karamali, Global News. Canadian travellers are blasting Air Transat tonight after a runway nightmare none of them will ever forget. Stuck on a sweltering tarmac in Rome for six hours with little to no air conditioning, food or water. Canada's new air passenger rights bill not applicable in this case. Pretty scary when, when you're in the plane and doors shut, all the lights go off twice. That was just the beginning for these 366 passengers en route to Toronto from Rome on Monday. Mechanical problems meant hours of delays on the tarmac as passengers waited with little food and air conditioning. Brian Costa was on the plane on his way home from a two-week trip. If you were lucky enough to sit on or stand on the platform or stairs, you were able to get a little bit of air. Otherwise, you were in the cabin, most likely 45 plus degrees. Uh, fanning yourself with a piece of paper. Air Transat says some passengers requested to leave the plane, causing further delay. Ultimately, the flight was cancelled due to regulations for crew fatigue. Passengers sent to a nearby hotel until the morning. There, was, there wasn't a lot of communication. Everyone was always asking for updates. Give us updates. What's going on? The rescheduled flight left the next day. The total delay, 23 hours and 46 minutes. An Air Transit spokesperson told Global News in a statement, we would like to express our regret for the inconvenience this delay may have caused to our passengers, but we confirm that we have done our best to ensure their comfort. Airline passenger rights advocate Gabor Lucas says the situation is evidence Canada's Air Passenger Bill of Rights enacted this summer has little teeth since it doesn't apply outside of Canada. Those regulations don't protect passengers. If those regulations were working, what we have seen today wouldn't have happened. The circumstances, the situation, it was, it was inhumane. I, people get arrested for leaving dogs in a hot car. What about humans on a hot plane? Albert Delatala, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, a major announcement today by the Trump administration that could have a direct effect on our health care system. That's right. The White House says it'll set up a system to allow Americans to legally import less expensive prescription drugs from other countries, including Canada. A disturbing trend in the U.S., the rising cost of medication. Drug companies are greeting the new year with price hikes. With few competitors, the price has skyrocketed. A heated topic at last night's debate. We have a dysfunctional health care system. And making headlines today. We're open for business. As the Trump administration laid out the foundation to allow the U.S. to legally import drugs from foreign countries like Canada, where medications are often much cheaper. We'll let you bring them in in a way that's safe for the American consumer and also reduce their costs. While welcome news for many, it's not the answer for millions of others because today's proposal does not include certain drugs like insulin. Without this drug, my son will die. Insulin is one of the most common drugs Americans like Kathy Sego go to Canada to purchase. A vial there costs roughly 10 times less than it does in the U.S. Ali Murata was diagnosed with diabetes at 12. How essential is it for a type 1 diabetic to use insulin? 
it's the only option. The 25-year-old works three jobs and struggles to afford the medication she so desperately needs. She's covered under her parents' insurance now, but that ends in five months. Buying insulin here at this price is not an option. That's why she rations hers to get the most out of what she has. Right now, it's, it's like a survival mode. Like you ration because you have to. And you're not alone in this. No. There are people who are in a more severe situation than I am that not only have they been rationing, but they get to a point where they can't afford any insulin at all. And those people who are dying. As for the effect this new policy could have on the Canadian drug supply and whether it would create shortages, no one really knows. There are very few details on how much dialogue, if any, there has been between U.S. and Canadian health officials. Another crucial update tonight on that potential environmental disaster in the interior, the rock slide blocking the route of millions of returning salmon. Ted Trenecki has the latest on the rescue effort on the choked off Fraser River. It's a marvel to watch what everyone here is trying to do to save the salmon. A detonation to send rocks hurtling into the rapids below in the hope they'll create a natural fish ladder. A calculated nudge that may or may not succeed. This isn't for the squeamish as workers hang perilously high above this suddenly raging Fraser River. Most of the effort so far has been simply to make the site safe. So the ever-changing environment has uh, really been a challenge and we just uh, need um, cooperation from the uh, Mother Nature and uh, hopefully we can get some fish past. A hydroacoustic monitoring station about two kilometers downstream from the slide suggests about 40,000 salmon have swam past it since July 12th. Those they do catch are tossed into a bucket and airlifted for about a five-minute flight upstream, but even the biggest buckets can only hold between 50 and 100 salmon. And while this is expected to be a relatively small run, there still might be two million fish coming. The good news is we don't see a lot of fish coming through at this time. There is still a bunch of fish, so if the run size does stay small, you know, that may be a good thing for the big bar slide. A fish ladder is being built in Vancouver in segments to be shipped here and put in place as early as this weekend. And a big fish wheel is being assembled. It'll be placed here once all these logs are removed. So far, only about 1,400 salmon have been airlifted, and very few have been seen to be strong enough to make it through the rapids on their own. Ted Chernaki, Global News. Hold on! Okay, go. Don't let go! Caught on police body camera, a life and death rescue in the dark. That's coming up right after the forecast. All right, Yvonne Shell joins us once again from English Bay. Celebration of light tonight, Yvonne. Looks like a good night for it. Yeah, it's beautiful down here. We've got a little bit of a breeze off the water night now, and it is going to be nice and clear to view the fireworks. If you're planning on heading down, let's take a look at that forecast. Around 10 p.m. when things kick off, Team Canada tonight will be, uh, temperatures will be sitting at 19 degrees. You may want to grab a light coat, and then the overnight tonight we're dipping down to 17. A beautiful shot overlooking English Bay on our tower cam, and temperatures today have bumped up, up to 22 or 23 for most areas. And with the humid exits, felt closer to 28 degrees, so a 
warm one, especially for areas away from the water. Still a bit of active weather though into the interior, the central interior, Prince George, a severe thunderstorm warning is in effect. We could see very gusty winds, intense rain, and we could see the potential for hail developing with these cells. Rainfall warning across the south coast right now, eastern areas of the island and along the Sunshine Coast, and a special weather statement has been issued for most areas along the sun, uh, south coast, including Metro Vancouver. So the moisture is going to move in by the morning tomorrow. It's going to intensify by the afternoon. We are going to see uh, the bulk of the moisture for Metro Vancouver, and that'll start to push in as we get in late towards the evening hours. My computer may have froze there, but we are going to see the bulk of the moisture moving in for us across Metro Vancouver by tomorrow evening. Oh, it's picking up now. And then we'll see uh, heavy at times for our Friday. That'll be the soggy day. And then easing off just in time for Saturday when we'll start to see the next round of fireworks. And that'll be Team Croatia. The northern half of the province tomorrow, much drier. It's really across the southern half and for Metro Vancouver. So a heads up. Thursday overnight and towards our Friday. That's when we'll see the wettest weather. And then it rebounds for both our Saturday and Sunday. Guys? Looks amazing. Thanks very much and have fun down there tonight, Yvonne. All right, police in Des Moines, Iowa have released dramatic body camera footage of a nighttime water rescue. Hold on! Okay, go. Don't let go! Officers were called out at about 9.30 after an inflatable boat went over a dam. A 44-year-old man and a 50-year-old woman were stranded in the rushing water, struggling to keep from being washed away. It took several agonizing minutes for six Des Moines police officers and a good Samaritan to pull them out. They were taken to hospital and released soon after with no serious injuries. Got pretty scary there for a moment. All is calm now with Squire here and sports. Okay, uh, I guess so. All right. Um, try to get through the sports cast with Squire without noticing the stain on his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny one. I, I, normally I would not even put on a shirt. It matches your tie. So. I, I, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Okay, this came out last night, but I thought I'd mention it. Uh, tough news for Canuck swinger Brock Besser and his family. It's come out that Brock's father, Duke Besser, is fighting cancer again. He beat lung cancer back in 2017, but it returned six weeks ago. It caused a heart issue. He's in ICU right now in a Minnesota hospital. Besser's father is quite an inspiration for Brock. Aside from fighting cancer, his dad also deals with Parkinson's. When Brock made his NHL debut in Minnesota with the Canucks, his dad and mom were in the dressing room to announce the starting lineup, which of course included Brock Besser. At the start. Bonzo Davies, this is against Tottenham in the Audi Cup. It's a four-team tournament that Bayern Munich holds, and this was the final. That is a brilliant strike from the right foot of Davies. This game was tied 2-2. Uh, Bayern Munich lost in penalties, but this was the most memorable moment of the final today, and everyone who follows Bayern Munich was talking about the kid from Canada and that right-footed strike against Tottenham. MLS All-Stars are playing tonight in Orlando against Atletico Madrid, one of the best teams in Spain. No score until late in the first half. Marcos Llorente with a nice pass from Rodrigo Riquelme will make it 1-0 for Atletico Madrid. That is the score now at halftime. One more look. There's a clever little back pass. And it's 1-0 for the guys in stripes. 
Uh, Bo Bichette, his dad Dante once won the National League Home Run Championship in 1985. His boy Bo hits his first ever home run as the Jays beat the Royals 4-1. Incidentally, the Jays today traded pitchers Aaron Sanchez and Joe Biangini to Houston for outfielder Derek Fisher, whom some think has a pretty good future in the majors. Well, this happened last night. Amir Garrett didn't like the chirping from the Pirates, so he decides to take on the entire team. Well, you want a piece of me? All 25 of you right now. And there he goes. Now, the Reds and the Pirates had a brawl back in April. So these two teams don't like each other. And Yasuel Puig, who doesn't mind throwing punches, he swings at other players just as much as he swings at pitches. There's Garrett showing that he has been to the gym. And here comes Puig. And he was traded after the game to Cleveland. And the guy who ends up in Cincinnati is Trevor Bauer, the guy who the other day threw the ball over the wall and upset his team. So they both got dealt. Uh, we all know the BC boys who play on the PGA Tour, but we want to introduce you to a BC boy who is a caddy on the tour. Mike Darby of Richmond, Steveston High grad, BCIT grad, his 11th season as a pro looper. Never caddied for the Dalai Lama like Bill Murray's character in Caddyshack, but he's been on the bag for three PGA Tour wins, including a recent one with Jim Herman at the Barbasol Championship. Jim Herman has found the winner's circle in the horse capital of the world. Mike, great job. Jim Herman, the Barbasol Championship. How much does your third PGA victory mean to you compared to the other two? Oh, everything, because we were both on the verge of quitting at that point. Like I said, I had missed 12 cuts in a row. November 2018 was my last one made. Jim had missed 15 out of 18 cuts. It was a horrific season to say that. 10 o'clock. Mike Darby's been measuring conditions and giving yardage on the PGA Tour for over a decade now. As a professional caddy, the golfing gold trail is lucrative when your player is making cuts and cashing big checks. But when they're not, it's more like nickels and dimes because caddies cover their own expenses, which can easily average out to a minimum 40000 U.S. a season. There were multiple peaks and valleys, that's for sure. My lowest point would have probably been around 2010. I was uh, living in a barn on my parents' property in my 30s, broke. What don't we see that, that you go through? 26 to 30 weeks a year on the road, no job security whatsoever. There are basically no written contracts. Uh, you could be fired at any minute by the wife, agent, coach, you name it, anyone. And um, you go through periods when you don't have a job and you wonder if you're ever going to get one because you're very quickly forgotten out there. How about this one? Because that was my first PJ Tour victory and Nick is a good friend of mine. Darbs, one and counting. Couldn't have done it without you, Nick Taylor. He was one of the first people to send me a congrats message last week, too. I really appreciate that. It's a privilege to work with both him and Hadwin. That's for sure. I loved it. Both great guys. It's a caddy tradition to keep the flag from the 18th hole when their player finishes atop the leaderboard. Darby's well-respected by his peers on tour and has collected a handful of them over the years. But the real payday for a caddy is being in the heat of the battle on the weekend. A made cut equates to a 5% payday, a top 10 finish 7% of a player's earnings, and a victory's worth a sizable 10% cut of the winner's check. People always say you win the first time, it's life-changing, but then you don't win again for a few years. Like you say, you think about quitting, but it's life-changing yet again. Yes, 
absolutely. It takes us on a whole new path. You know, we're gonna start the year at the Tournament of Champions, can plan a schedule, that's the biggest thing. And uh, having the, the benefit of hindsight now, it was, um, I'm glad I didn't quit. If it, if it all ends tomorrow, then I'm very thankful. It was good, got to experience it. Good story, good there for you go. Garbs. Yeah, right. local guy making good. Thank you, Squire. Tonight we end on the story of an incredibly talented up-and-coming musician who's on his way to becoming a concert pianist. As Cynthia McFadden reports, he credits the war that drove the Taliban out of Afghanistan with giving him the chance to live his dream. Alham Fanous grew up in Afghanistan. At the time, the Taliban had made playing or listening to music a crime. You couldn't make any music, you couldn't play any instrument, you couldn't sing. You could be arrested. You could be arrested or, or you could be killed. American forces put an end to that in 2001 when Elham was four. But only 25 pianos remained in the whole country, he says. Elham waited for hours every day to practice on one. My passion and my, my ambition is to be one of the greatest in the world. He says his talent has sacrifices. He's not seen his family for the four years of college. None of it would have happened if it hadn't been for those U.S. troops that gave music back to the Afghan people. So Elham wrote an open letter to the U.S. troops who served there. I wish I could talk to each of you. I would tell you that a generation of young Afghans has grown up in a civil society, which you enabled through your service and courage. I would ask you not to despair that your sacrifice was wasted. I'll prove it was not. I'll always say thank you through my lifetime of music. He's now headed to grad school at the Manhattan School of Music. Dreams intact, gratitude at the ready. Cynthia McFadden, NBC News, New York. Wow. How could you make that illegal? Right? It's amazing. Great to hear him playing. Really cool. It, there is, I always have nothing but envy for someone who can play an instrument like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we've well, heard you drum. You're close. Well, yes. That's you? like, I drum on a steering wheel. This guy goes on a stage and I'd does real music. Say, though, you play the drums better than we play any other instrument. Oh, Absolutely. well, I feel better about so myself the then. Talented. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be okay. playing Happy Birthday for producer Tim Perry. Happy Birthday, Tim. Happy Birthday, Tim. Have a good night, all.